Welcome to the Blockchain Reaction Podcast. My name is Mike Fay. This show is about crypto and blockchain businesses. It is completely member-supported through the Blockchain Reaction service on Seeking Alpha. That's where you'll find the full episodes and video archive, as well as a whole lot more. This month on Blockchain Reaction, LivePeer co-founder Doug Pitcanics. So what sort of position is it to be in where 90% of your income goes straight through to your competitor? That's not independence and that doesn't let you, you know, create something disruptive, innovative that's that's better for the world if it threatens their, their bottom line. Before we get to the more interesting stuff, let's get the disclaimer out of the way. The views and opinions expressed in the following podcast are those of myself and my guest, None of this is investment advice or a solicitation for you to buy any financial instrument. I am not a licensed investment advisor. This content is for informational purposes only. All right, let's get started. Joining the Blockchain Reaction podcast this month is Doug Petkanics. He is the co-founder of LivePeer. And Doug, I want to get right into it with you. Um, talk to me about you know who you are, your background, and, uh, and what brings you to the space. Sure thing. Yeah, Mike, thanks for uh, having me on. Excited to, to be here and talk live here. Um, so yeah, as you mentioned, founder at Live Peer, which is the world's open video infrastructure. Um, we're a video streaming platform built on the Ethereum network that developers use to power their video streaming applications, apps that look like Twitch and YouTube and TikTok um, can be built on Live Peer. And happy to talk all about how that works and how we leverage blockchain and everything um, over time. But to give you a little bit of background, on myself, um, I'm a repeat founder. This is my third um, company that I founded. I'm a software engineer by background. Um, previously, I've kind of been leading engineering at, at startups, including one that was uh, you know, successful and got acquired by Groupon as a data infrastructure startup. And one mobile infrastructure startup that actually didn't work out. And so I've seen the kind of ups and downs of the uh, entrepreneurial spectrum as well. Um, part of the reason the last one didn't work was because um, we were building on closed platforms of Google, Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. And everything that we thought would happen and built for happened, except they all changed the rules of the game, closed their APIs off, cut off our distribution and access. And you know, we, we kind of said right then and there, never again are we building on these closed big tech platforms and letting them control our destiny. And lo and behold, um, Ethereum as a development platform that was open and, and not controllable by any single party was just rising. And that led us to this uh, kind of crypto world back in 2016. Yeah, that's a great example of a, of a teaching moment, I guess. You know, you have these centralized kind of cloud uh, companies and, and yeah, that's it's good to nugget. Um, so LivePeer, you guys started that. Um, talk about, you know, what is LivePeer at a very high level and and, you know, why, I guess, video streaming on a blockchain? Sure. So um, video, one of the most popular forms of, of media and communication around the world, it's 80% of the traffic on the internet is used um, by video. And I think we've all felt that tremendously over the, the past couple of years of the pandemic, when it's how we communicate and work, it's how we get our entertainment, it's how we learn things, um, it's how we participate in the world economy and video is only growing. Um, and so uh, the video is very computationally expensive. It puts tremendous loads on, on infrastructures. And there's only a few providers in the world that can actually power live video streaming at scale. It's unsurprisingly those big tech platforms we were talking about before. It's yeah, Amazon Web Services, it's Google Cloud, it's, it's Microsoft Azure. 
And as a result, it's actually very expensive to provision capacity and build video applications. Uh, but you know, one of the powers of blockchains and decentralized networks is actually coordination. And you can uh, embed incentives inside of open source software to get people to coordinate, to run networks, and they're incentivized in ways where they're owners in these networks and can participate in the economic upside as these networks get used. And video infrastructure is a great example of this because there's tens of thousands of servers all around the world, millions of servers all around the world that have idle capacities that can be used to uh, ingest video, encode video, stream video. And when you're streaming live video, it's really important that these servers be located near the sources of the video and near where the video is being consumed. And so, um, you know, we had done a lot of video engineering and we were frustrated by the costs and challenges of scaling. And we said, well, you know, this, this new paradigm shift of, you know, open development platforms and incentives allow you to actually incentivize this global network of all this capacity to come together to power, you know, video streaming and allow developers to build these applications in really affordable ways. And, you know, just to give you a sense of the order of magnitude, if you're gonna build a video application on one of these centralized cloud platforms, you're typically talking about something like $3 an hour per live stream just to encode the video. On the live peer network, all of the kind of node operators um, have hardware and bandwidth and electricity where their cost to do this work is only a couple of cents an hour. And so, you know, in an open marketplace, they can charge something that's way cheaper than $3 an hour, like 10, 15, 30 cents an hour, still make tremendous profit um, and be disruptive to the, the status quo. And so that was, you know, part of the original thought. And since then, we've been just really inspired by all of the um, kind of Web3 native use cases where people want to build on decentralized networks and leverage the power of blockchains. Um, and really be the the video infrastructure layer for this Web3 movement, which I'm happy to get into as well. Absolutely. So you touched on something that I thought was interesting. Basically, you know, computer computational capacity for a lot of these mining rigs can kind of be used to build live peer and without impacting kind of like the mining uh, that they're, the reward, I guess they're getting from blocks. Do you see, or do you know even if it's, since you're built on Ethereum, um, is it Ethereum miners? Do they have an easier time doing that or does it matter? Does it not matter at all? That's right. Yeah. People who are mining cryptocurrencies using GPUs or graphical processing units, the type of device that's used to mine Ethereum, for example, they can continue using the portion of those units that are used to hash cryptocurrencies. But those, those GPUs happen to have video encoding chips on them that can hash cryptocurrencies. They just sit there doing absolutely nothing. And so what LivePeer allows them to do is say, oh, when video encoding need, work needs to be done, we can make additional money for doing that without disrupting our cryptocurrency mining. Um, and that's really powerful. It's almost a no-brainer value proposition to these, these miners um, and creates you know, these, these really uh, nice cost advantages for users of the network as well. And again, part of the kind of original, original promise. So you know, the live peer network's been live for um, four and a half years on Ethereum. Um, it recently migrated to Arbitrum, which is a layer two scaling solution. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of what happened in those first couple of years was just this supply side community of miners were, were 
coming onto the network, running the software, bootstrapping it, being available for video encoding um, and earning the live peer token along the way. Um, it's kind of how the token was distributed um, and continues to be. Um, and we can you know, get into that as well. Yeah, for sure. So would you say for kind of like, you know, an, more of like a, not a necessarily a network effect, but even just like a base uh, adoption uh, of live peer, do you, did you go more towards trying to get miners on board so that they could bring that computational power online before there's even really demand or, or do you try to kind of go with here's to the more the consumer or I guess the, the creator saying, Hey, this is available and you should start using it. Like, how did you go about that? Really good question. So in any marketplace like this with a supply and demand um, component, there's a chicken and egg problem, right? Like you need the supply in order to get the demand, but the supply doesn't want to show up um, unless there's demand waiting to pay them. Right. And this is one of the unique superpowers of cryptocurrency and blockchain coordinated networks is you can actually um, solve this chicken and the egg problem by putting incentives for the supply side to show up that exist before there's demand. And what do those incentives look like? It's the you know, distribution of the token, which plays a critical role in the network and the speculative belief that this token you know, gives them the ability to do work and earn money um, in the future. And you know, they'll, they'll earn money as a result of that. And so of course that requires a really sound economic design. It requires great execution on the product, um, but if, you know, that design is there, people believe in this vision and can do the work to help power this, they're, they're kind of being paid in this distribution of ownership and work in the network prior to the demand side. And, and as I mentioned, that was kind of the first couple of years of the network as the software was being developed, iterated on, as the network was, was becoming reliable. Um, we always valued practicality. We always had test users and a lot of the demand side users were things like, you know, Cryptocurrency events wanted to stream their meetup, their conference, their presentations. They'd want to dog food the software and try and use this network. That was great, but that, you know, an event is one stream of video at any given moment. That's not a lot of dollars flowing to these node operators on the network. Um, after the first couple of years, when this network was reliable, we said, okay, now it's really important that we focus on the demand side and who are going to be the users of this, this network. And, you know, even though the kind of Web3 video world was still pretty nascent, there weren't a lot of developers building social applications, the media applications, the gaming applications yet. We knew that would come. But the good news is, hey, there's a $70 billion video streaming industry out there already that definitely wants you know, cost-effective video encoding and streaming and started to build product that allowed the existing video industry to, to tap in. And that's that's been great. If you kind of look at the growth chart in terms of minutes streamed on the network um, each week, you know, from you know a year and a half ago, it was uh, you know a hundred thousand a week, and then it grew a year ago to four hundred thousand, and then it grew you know eight months ago to a million, and then we hit two million and three million, and and we've kind of been at this um, you know two and a half to three million minute uh, of million minutes of video a week um, mark for a while, which is you know at any given moment. There's a couple hundred streams of video being ingested into this network and processed by the, the miners on our network. And that's really powerful. It's really interesting. So before we kind of get into like the platforms, maybe the specific kind of uh, utility of the actual network, uh, you started talking a little bit about like the, the tokenomics of, of the coin. So can you kind of get into that a little bit more? Like, is there a supply cap? Is there no supply cap? How does it, you know, the, um, I guess the mechanism work for uh, rewarding it? 
Definitely. So um, LifePeer is sort of a proof of stake inspired protocol, right? The reason that we're not full proof of stake is because we're not, there's no consensus on anything. We're running on the Ethereum network, the Arbitrum network now. So that provides the security and the consensus. Um, but the reason it's proof of stake inspired is because our node operators stake token in order to secure their work. They basically, they lock it in a security deposit. And as long as they do their video encoding work correctly, they're earning inflationary token rewards on that stake in interest gotcha. rate, sort of, gotcha. right? Um, if they cheat and misencode video and that can be proven um, on chain, then they lose that stake, right? Slashing. So it's like the security deposit, yep. yep. And so um, that's the base simple assumption. It's, it's kind of one unit of stake entitles you the right to do one unit of work um, and earn you know, one unit of the fees that are paid in order to do that work. And so the more stake you have, the more work you can do, the more you can earn, right? Um, it's delegated proof of stake inspired in the sense that let's say you're a token holder, but you're not a node operator. Mm -hmm. You can delegate your stake towards um, any node operator that you choose. And in return, they'll share their inflationary token rewards and their fees with you. And they actually compete for your stake based on the rate that they're, they're sharing. Um, so everyone, so you're, as a token holder, you're essentially quality assuring the network. You're staking towards a node operator route more work towards them. They do a good job. They encode the video correctly. They earn fees. The network gets more useful. You're earning a portion as well. Um, how much, you know, inflationary rewards of LPT are you earning? And, and by the way, these fees from users are paid in ETH. So how much ETH are you earning, sure. right? The um, inflationary, inflation rate is kind of interesting. You mentioned fixed supply. So there's, there's no fixed supply of the live peer token. We kind of, you know, going back five years ago when we um, designed and launched this, we kind of pioneered this model of using um, inflation to incentivize people to participate. And what we did is we set a participation rate. We said, we want 50% of the token staked and participating in the network at any given time. And if less than that amount is participating, the inflation rate will rise a little bit every day to encourage more people to participate. If more than 50% is participating, hey, we don't need to pay so much in inflation. Um, we can reduce the rate a little bit every day. And you saw this really interesting curve where the first couple of years, the inflation shot really high as the token was being distributed and that distributed the token really widely. And then we had passed that 50% mark and it came back down almost to zero. And that encouraged people to drop off. And since it's come back up and find this really kind of happy equilibrium for the last year or so, right around that 50% mark where sometimes it's a little above, sometimes it's a little below. And the um, kind of you know rate of return that node operators are getting and token holders are getting are um, a little over 20% uh, kind of annualized return, though it swings a little bit every day, depending on the, the rate. And theoretically over time, you know, as there's more kind of adoption of, uh, of the network, then that rate figures to probably come down or is that how it would work? Right. Cause the other component you're earning is the fees that users are paying. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, um, that's paid in ETH. Right. And so um, each week, you know, there's been between like three and $10,000 worth of fees paid and distributed amongst the node operators and token holders. That's still small in comparison to the, the you know, dollar value of the LPT rewards. But as that portion grows, 
um, you see the need for the LPT rewards being high, being less because people are competing more for those those fees. Um, and I'll say, even though that is, you know, sort of small in, in DeFi terms or in kind of, uh, you know, compared to the LPT reward terms where there's millions of dollars worth of value distributed every, every month or so, um, it's still really powerful. You still have this, this node operator community of smaller hobbyist node operators that are, you know, on a GPU earning a couple hundred or a couple thousand dollars a month um, by competing to perform work on this network. And what else were they doing? Well, they're mining and earning like $1.50 a day, right? So it's like, oh, great. I was getting $1.50 a day off this GPU, but I can earn, you know, $10 a day off, off live peer. That's been really good. It's lucrative. It's it's additional use at, at no opportunity cost. And so yep. um, it's it's been helpful in bootstrapping the network as well. That's really cool. So I, I guess, you know, thinking about kind of how, you know, you see the, the competitive landscape, you obviously have, I think probably, you know, your more centralized tech companies uh, that are pretty obvious, but, you know, on, you know, a blockchain, would you say like Theta, few, you know, are not, uh, yeah, Theta Network, I think is what it's called, or Render Token, or those kind of comparable uh, type assets? Yeah, we've seen a lot of, um, We've seen a lot of different projects over the five years come and go and kind of touch on various aspects of video, all a little bit different to live peer um, data. I think it's a you know, great, credible project. They have their own blockchain. They have their own application. So they're focused on you know, the Theta TV gotcha. platform as sort of a YouTube type application sure. and kind of the infrastructure and token and whatnot have roles and are tied to, tied to that. Live peer powers many different applications that look like that that may or may not be crypto associated. So we're purely at the the infrastructure layer. Um, yeah, render you mentioned is a great kind of analog to live peer. You can think of it very similar to live peer, whereas we focus purely on video streaming in that market in that use case. They focus on the um, the three D rendering, which has a whole separate set of users and use cases, and sure. you know very applicable um, but similar similar capabilities, just with different software on top. Um, and yeah, there's been many other projects that have different, taken different approaches in the video space from the application layer all the way through down through particular pieces of infrastructure. Gotcha. So what is uh, user adoption been like? You know, what kind of, I guess, video streaming websites or platforms are you seeing come online? Yeah, some of the um, exciting ones are kind of, it's creator economy focused. Mm -hmm. So. Um, during the pandemic, one of the great success stories was a site called PlayDJ.tv. It was a streaming platform for DJs who all of a sudden couldn't perform in their their clubs <laughs> during COVID. And uh, yeah, they you know originally launched on one of these centralized platforms, had a thousand DJs sign up, and they actually had to shut it down after a week because it was bankrupting them for the infrastructure right. costs. Right. Um, and they they relaunched on LivePeer. They launched, found kind of a sustainable model with a bit of a pivot there. Um, and that was just a really cool example where that literally could not have existed without the you know cost effectiveness of of live peers open network. Um, you know, we're seeing other communities for certain niches of things you'd see on Twitch. So Picardo TV is an incredible platform for artists that stream their creation, their fans hang out and and make requests. Um, the Lot Radio is a, a radio station in Brooklyn that streams twenty four seven with the camera of a courtyard. Um, where people hang out and dance to music and um, <laughs> do that sort of thing. Um, so that's been, you know, a lot of the the usage has come from these um, kind of traditional streaming platforms. 
But recently, like in the past nine months or so, we're actually seeing more, not as many minutes streamed because these are all kind of early experiments, but a tremendous growth in terms of number of developers and users in what I would describe as more Web3 native sure. applications. And this is where you see people experimenting with like, what does blockchain uniquely enable that's not possible elsewhere? Like, how do we play around with immense video NFTs? Right. Sure. Like if, if the content is actually minted as an NFT and someone can own it, how does that change things? Uh, noting that like a large portion of, you know, how Twitch and, and co make revenue is like selling, you know, digital goods to people. What's it mean to have those be NFTs? Right. Uh, how do we do access control based on on-chain things? Like only token holders in this community can view this content because this is community specific content or yeah. only holders of this NFT can access um, this community call or, or these sorts of on-chain specific primitives. And so, you know, since the beginning of the year, we've seen over a hundred kind of hacks at hackathons that play around with these sorts of, of primitives. And we're actually, you know, really committed and excited to go all in at being the video infrastructure for all these Web3 projects because it's a real opportunity for us to be like the leader of this growing and exploding market that is the next wave of the internet as opposed to purely just competing with uh you know existing traditional video platforms um in a crowded video space that's cool you mentioned web3 a couple of times i think web3 has become a little contentious uh in recent months i don't know if you've seen any of the <laughs> uh back and forth on twitter um but how do you kind of view web3 how do you define it yeah, I think it's um, it's basically this collection of open technologies, open protocols, and open platforms that are returning kind of control and freedom and power to the individuals, to the developers, um, to the users of applications, and decentralizing it from kind of the few big tech monopolies that control much of it today, right? So if all this, all this web three hype leads to some open development platforms that let people embed economic incentives that are better for creators, consumers, and the platforms themselves, then I think that's really powerful. And that will enable kind of the next new wave of innovation on the internet, the way that, you know, mobile enabled a previous wave of innovation and, uh, you know, the, the internet itself enabled a huge wave of innovation in, in commerce information. Etc. And so, yeah, I think when you watch like where all the, the talent and entrepreneurship and development is flowing, when you watch what's getting built, when you watch how this stuff, not all of it, there's a lot of hype, but you know, the, the interesting bits are getting built into everything these days. It's, it's almost inevitable that this is the platform of the future of technology. And, you know, it's really exciting to, to be there and help enable it. And of course, you, you know, you have to battle and fight through the noise and the, the failures and uh, the catastrophes along the way. But, uh, you know, I think it's a worthy mission. It's very interesting. I think all of it's so uh, difficult for normal people to kind of wrap their heads around. And uh, I think that so much can get lost, like you said, the noise and a lot of these, you know, projects or tokens or whatever uh, that are you know, obviously not going to make it, <laughs> um, yeah. that, that finding things that are very interesting and that actually have some staying power can be a challenge. 
Um, but one of the main kind of uh, theories that I have for the next five to 10 years is that there's been media specifically, there has been such a large degree of centralization that projects like this one are actually really interesting because it can kind of give more power, more sovereignty, I guess, back to, uh, you know, like you said, developers and, and users in general. Do you see it the same way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what what do you see in the news this week? You see things that appear good on the surface, like you see, you know, the current administration in the U.S. is um, telling Facebook which posts are spreading misinformation about the COVID pandemic, and Facebook is is taking those down. Right? Good on the surface, maybe, but like that's a really hard thing to arbitrate. What's misinformation? Right. What's not? What does it mean when you zoom out and see that the administration is deciding which content can and cannot be seen by people? Like that's the definition of, of state, you know, state-sponsored censorship, right? And so the um, and you know, why is Facebook even why are they even in a position to be able to act on that in the, the first place? Well, it's because of this like monopoly power and the distribution of the content, right? And so um, and when your only options as a developer previously are to build on platforms that are owned by, you know, Facebook and Google and Amazon, you end up sort of beholden to them and in a really uncomfortable strategic position when they want to deplatform you or, you know, you know, control what content could be shown as well. And so these, you know, these open networks, you mentioned Helium before, which is a network for kind of exchanging bandwidth on wireless networks, sure. live peer and open protocol for building video applications, things like um, Rweave uh, is a kind of decentralized storage network for hosting applications, the graph for indexing data. You know, the, this, these are all part of the development stack that lets people build independent um, alternatives. And, you know, even in video, it's a great example. Anyone that's building a, a video platform ends up running their infrastructure on Amazon. Right, AWS, because it's like this big cloud platform that's kind of their, their only choice that can scale. But it just so happens that Amazon is also competing with them. Like if they're building an application layer, Amazon owns Twitch. And so right. if you're building a competitive application, you're spending 90% of the money you make straight through with Amazon that you're competing with, right? Or if you're building an infrastructure platform, you're competing with Amazon's video services themselves. And so what sort of position is it to be in where 90% of your income goes straight through to your competitor? Um, that's not independence and that doesn't let you, you know, create something disruptive, innovative, that's, that's better for the world. If it threatens their, their bottom line. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good. Um, I think that so much of, you know, the, the kind of ideas that we talk about, I think are generally, um, most people I think would be completely on board with, with everything that, you know, we're saying when it comes to kind of like opening things up, decentralizing and, and can I own this stuff, uh, you know, as a stakeholder or whatever. Um, the UI, I think, has just been getting in the way, specifically in crypto and, and, you know, tell someone, hey, check out Bitcoin, but to take it self-custody, you have to have this long string of characters. They're kind of like, okay, I'm out. I don't want that. Um, yep. You know, with live peer, is the user, the end user, ultimately the person who's watching the video, are they able to just go into a platform and engage with it and interact with it without even knowing that, you know, it's a platform that's built on live peer on a decentralized network. 
Very good. Is there anything that you want to add with the last couple of minutes that we have before uh, we wrap it up? Sure thing. Yeah, I just wanted to add, I think it's um, you know been a tough time the last couple of months in the crypto markets financially, but it's actually a really incredible time to be building um, the next wave of disruptive applications, including video applications, because for the first time after you know four plus years of building, all these infrastructure primitives are in place. So developers have tools for building video apps. They have tools for building social apps. They have tools for building gaming and metaverse apps. And a lot of these projects like, like LivePeer are well capitalized to help build with them, support them, um, help enable some of these you know, disruptive apps that uh, you know, put power back in the hands of, of creators and users. So you know, come find us at livepeer.org, join our community. We're there available, happy to answer any questions, help people build. That's perfectly put. Thank you so much, Doug. It was really great talking to you and, and best of luck with LivePeer. I think it's really cool what you guys are building. Sure thing. Thanks, Mike, for having me on. It was great. Absolutely. While that was most of our conversation, it wasn't all of it. There's more behind the paywall over at Blockchain Reaction through Seeking Alpha. You can get a whole lot more than just the podcast archive by becoming a member. There's a live chat with Blockchain Reaction community, a weekly newsletter with data and insights from the crypto market, a live portfolio, and two of my top token picks every single month. It's an awesome service, and I'd love to see you in the chat. The link to Blockchain Reaction is in the podcast description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month.